Welcome back to Apologetics for Tweens. I'm Tom Griffin. For today's podcast, we're going to address the concern that there are many different Bible versions. There are minor word variations, but critics claim this shows the Bible is corrupt and cannot be trusted. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all your blessings. I pray that all those who need to learn more about the evidence you've left for us to discover you and know you better will be led to the sources for this knowledge and will therefore find the truth, believe in you, and maintain that belief for life. Amen. It's important to understand the reason for different Bible versions and also to know that there is no significance to it in any way that corrupts the Bible or any important meanings. The most obvious example of a different Bible version is the King James, which was introduced in 1611. It contains language referred to as Elizabethan, or some say Shakespearean, kind of flowery language. So one simple reason that different versions exist is that as modern language usage changes and is updated, the desire is to make the Bible as easily understood as possible by the most people, and that's important. But to be clear, the English changes are minor and don't affect the meaning of the keywords or sentences. Another reason is that theologians and scholars continually try to make better translations of the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek original languages that the Bible was written in. Remember that English is not the natural language of the Bible. English contains perhaps four million words, but the Bible languages, at least Greek and Hebrew, are in the thousands. So when you read a Greek sentence, for example, you have to determine the best translation of that word and group of words into English, and also how to grammatically fit it into English since the sentence structure in different languages tends to vary somewhat. Not every word has a direct translation, and the nouns and verbs and subjects are sometimes put in different orders between languages. Um, sometimes it could sound strange and create more confusion if you have absolutely direct uh, order of translation. The committees that look into these translations have to understand what the author was trying to say at the time and in what context, since many words have multiple meanings. But among the scholars on the committees, there may be some debate and even disagreement about the correct way to interpret and translate. So compromises are eventually made in order to publish. You might find it interesting someday to get the NET Bible, which I recently purchased. It contains about 60,000 notes directly from the translators about decisions that they considered and then made for various words from the passages. passages. It will definitely give you an appreciation of how difficult the process is and may clear up some questions you have about certain words that are translated. I like to use, as an example, the Greek word perasmos as an example. The same word can mean tested, trial, or temptation, or tempted. So when Matthew states that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted, was that the correct translation, or should it have been tested? When James says that God does not tempt us, was that correct, or should it have been tested? 
You see, these are fairly important distinctions from the same Greek word. You should study this more on your own someday and make your own determinations. Now, back to the different versions. They tend to fall mostly into one of several categories. First, what we call word for word. And this has a, an actual term called formal equivalence. This is an attempt to translate word for word in spite of possible grammatical confusion. This method is often used by scholars and pastors, but it's never 100% match. The King James and the English Standard Version, ESV, are examples of this. Then there is thought for thought, called dynamic equivalence. This idea is to translate the essence of the message from the original language into the desired language as best can be done using modern language. The New Improved Version, or NIV, is such an example. And this method is often used for the average person who may read the Bible. Next, we have paraphrased. This is a more general way of phrasing the meaning from the original language to the easiest way to explain and understand it in the desired language. The New Living Translation, or NLT, may be a good example of this. And finally, we have combination, called optimal equivalence. This method first tries to translate word for word as much as possible, but then seeks to translate uh, the remainder of the words in the sentence in a combination that's the closest meaning to the original and easiest to communicate and understand. The Holman Christian Study Bible is such an example. I've used one for years. It's an apologetic study Bible that also contains many articles and notes at the bottom of pages that address apologetics questions and issues and explanations of some of the verses. The articles are particularly interesting too and are apologetics related. Regardless of the English minor word and phrase variations, the meaning of the sentence has not changed from the original language. It's important to note that all the translations are made from the same 6,000 or so New Testament Greek copies discussed in a previous episode, and many thousands and thousands from the Hebrew and Aramaic. To be clear, it's only the translated version into English that has changed at all. So if you understand my point here, there is no Bible corruption from the original language, just minor word variations for better understanding in English. So the claim that the Bible has been corrupted over the centuries through all the different versions is a deception and misunderstands what those versions are and the purpose. A related issue to this discussion I'll just mention is about what we call the majority text or the critical text or textus receptus. And this is an unsettled debate. Of the earliest manuscripts or copies we have, we have the fewest of those. Of the later or more recent manuscripts available, we have the most of those. That's the description of either the critical or majority text. Now for textus receptus, this comes from only one series of manuscripts from the 15th century and is considered the only one without error by those who support and promote the King James Version, which exclusively uses these. Their view is that scribes would copy the best manuscripts the most times.
The question is, which is the best and most reliable? The earliest, where we have the fewest copies, or the later ones, where we have the most copies? This debate comes into play, for example, when you compare the NIV with the King James. The King James translation is made from a small number of manuscripts developed by the scribe Erasmus, although there are many existing copies of these. But none are earlier than the 4th century, in spite of having so many copies. On the other hand, the NIV is composed of some of the earliest manuscripts, but we have the fewest. You'll hear the strong, strongest supporters of the King James Version claim that verses were left out of the critical text manuscripts. But the question really is, were some left out, or were they added in the 15th century versions supported by the King James? Which is best? That's a question that is subjective and really a matter of opinion amongst theologians. When it comes to most Bible scholars, you may find they believe the earliest are best. A note may appear at the bottom of the page of your Bible here and there and will say something like, not included in the earliest manuscripts, or the best manuscripts, or the most reliable manuscripts, or a combination of those. We discussed this somewhat in our previous episodes on scribal edits. It might be easiest to understand why no firm conclusion can be made from the following example. Suppose that the earliest copy we find has only a small number of copies because that was not the most frequently copied due to an understanding at the time that the person who did it was not as professional or reliable or even authoritative. But somehow their copy was preserved and discovered, and it was early. Or we could say, suppose that the earliest copy had a small number of copies because the copyist was killed shortly after. Then other copyists made many other copies from a different manuscript in their possession. You could create scenarios all day long, one way or the other, but we simply don't know. No matter which is preferred, they all agree at a rate of 98 to 99% in the original language manuscripts with no important meaning differences. I hope that helps, however, to make the point that none of the original languages of the manuscripts have changed, only the translations into different Bible versions with minor variations have changed. There is no corruption of the Bible. Take care and be safe.